Hey, if you've got a Coffeehouse Bible, it's page 846. It's Matthew chapter 20. But today's going to feel a little weird. If you're used to like a typical sermon, it's going to feel more like uh, a class. Sorry for that. That's just something I need to share on the front end. But the classes today is really based on a book, one of my favorites that I read in the last few years by a guy named Andy Crouch. It's a book called Strong and Weak. Um, Strong and Weak. And it fits really well into our series that's called All Authority. All Authority. This is part two. So let me just catch you up on part one because half of the room wasn't even here last week. Part one, we introduced all authority. Authority is a really major theme in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the last thing Jesus talks about is all authority has been given to me. It's the last note of the Sermon on the Mount that this guy's astonishing. He's teaching with authority. He has authority to do amazing things. So last week we saw that Jesus has tremendous claims of authority that he then backs up with his deeds of authority. He can, he can touch a leper and the leper can be healed. He can speak the word, just like the Roman centurion said, and the child can be healed. He can go and he can cast out demons. He can still the storms. He has all authority. He doesn't just claim it, he backs it up. And this is really good news because in a culture that's really skeptical of authority, to see somebody that can actually put things back together in every way that we need and still be lowly and gentle, it's extraordinary. If you want, you can go back and listen to that some other time, but today we're moving on to the next time that that the Gospel of Matthew uses this language of authority. And what's fascinating is that there's almost this paradox that shows up. This is what Crouch calls it. He calls it the paradox of flourishing. The paradox of flourishing. Paradox is where two things seem like opposites, but they're held together in some kind of fruitful tension. That by holding them together, they're actually better together. So these things seem like opposites, and the things that seem like opposites is the concept of authority and vulnerability. So in part one, we're saying that Jesus has all authority. He can do anything. He can put all things back together. He is God in the flesh. He People bow down and they call him Lord, and this is the only response to Jesus. But this week, I want to show you that it's not just that he has claims of authority. It's that he expresses his authority through significant vulnerability. So Andy Crouch, he puts it like this in his book. The paradox of flourishing is that true flourishing requires two things that at first don't seem to go together at all. In fact, if you don't have both, you do not have flourishing and you do not create it for others. Okay, do you hear what's at stake? You don't get flourishing, other people don't get flourishing. Here's the paradox. Flourishing comes from being both strong and weak. Flourishing comes from being both strong and weak. It requires us to embrace both authority and vulnerability, both capacity and frailty, at least in this broken world, both life and death. He says, the best way to picture a paradox is one of my favorite things, a two-by-two chart. This is probably like the 10th chart that I've shown you. So can, can I just walk through another two-by-two chart? Okay, here we go. Is anyone as excited as I am to see this? All right, do you see there's two axes? axes. One is authority. And so down here, there's low authority. Up there, there's high authority. And this axis is vulnerability. I'm speaking Sarah's love language back there. So vulnerability and authority, but let me just quickly define them as Crouch does. He says, authority is the capacity for meaningful change, for meaningful action. Okay, so it needs meaning. It needs to have a beginning and an end. It needs to have a story to make sense of. It has to be meaningful, and it's the capacity to have meaningful action. Vulnerability is the exposure to meaningful risk. So a lot of people use vulnerability to basically mean emotional transparency. That's not how he's using the word. Hear me. Oftentimes, using emotional transparency can be a good thing. It can also be manipulation. But that's more an expression of what he means by authority. When somebody gets emotional, they're doing it to to have a meaningful action come. What he means by vulnerability is risk. It means being woundable. You understand? Authority is the capacity to act meaningfully. Vulnerability is the exposure to risk meaningfully. So he says flourishing 
is the convergence of these two ideas. And you, unfortunately, though, n- almost none of us are actually living in this place, and yet all of us were made for this place. Humans have this unique convergence of authority and vulnerability. Just think Genesis 1, 2, 3. We are made as images of God, and we're given dominion over the heavens and the earth. There's, there's authority in what it means to be human, and yet, is there anyone as vulnerable as a human? How long does it take to release the bird from the nest? I was with the family this past week, and we were watching the albatross, this great winged bird, like seven-foot wingspan. After just a couple of weeks, the albatross will leap off the island, and it will start soaring, provided it escapes from the sharks. You can watch it on planet Earth. It's really cool. Provided they escape the sharks, and then they will not land again for six years. Now, they'll just soar, and they'll, they'll be in the water and in the, in the air for six years at just an infant. Picture an elephant that gives birth to a baby elephant. This elephant immediately outweighs me, and it's stronger than me, too. Just, it just pops out, and it's like standing up strong, ready to go on the migration. Now, Clem was here this morning, and it's a little different. He's hardly ready for the great migration. He's not ready to soar just yet, but in 25 years he might be. <laughs> Pascal, he says, we're, we're a reed. Of all the creatures, we're like a reed, but a thick reed. Churchill, he says, people are worms. But I like to think of, he says, I like to think that I'm a glow worm. <laughs> it's like there's this authority and vulnerability wrapped in together. This is what we're made for. We're dust and images. What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? It's incredible how humans are both. But more than just the creational design that we're both of these, we will see this in Jesus. This is where we're going today. We're going to look at how the authority of Jesus is expressed through vulnerability. Jesus is the most authoritative human who's ever lived, and Jesus embraces the devastating effects of risk and cost and woundability. And so if you think flourishing looks like something different than Jesus, I'm just going to ask you to reconsider. I think when we see Jesus, we see the person who is most alive. The, the person who really shows us what human life looks like. And unfortunately, very few of us are living in that vision of life that he had. Instead, we settle for something less. So let's walk through the other options. So what would it look like to have lots of vulnerability and very little authority, the capacity for change, for meaningful action? This quadrant I'm calling, like he does, suffering. He says this is where poverty fits. It's, it's where you're exposed to all kinds of risk and you don't have the capacity to do anything about it, either as an individual or as a community. This is the quadrant that no one wants to be in. And this is the quadrant that all of us will experience. Every adult human will go through the quadrant of suffering. And every adult human, unless the Lord returns, will end their story in the quadrant of suffering. And so because of this, this fear of death, this vulnerability, this risk of death and all its effects, we run to the other side. We run to the other... If this is vulnerability, then let me run to the opposite side of the spectrum. So instead of suffering, we'll go to this this quadrant that has, you see a high authority, but low vulnerability. He calls it control. He also calls it exploitation. It's, it's where you have lots of capacity, but you're all guarded. No one can be, you're not risking anything. This seems to be the dream of everyone who grew up in suffering. If you grew up in poverty, if you were chained down, if you were part of a people who were vulnerable in some way, the dream seems to be, I need authority. But meanwhile, the people who have control and authority, he calls it, it's, it's like the, 
the law of the preservation of authority or the law of the preservation of vulnerability. He says, as long as you are exercising authority without vulnerability, he says, there will always be somebody else carrying your vulnerability. There will always be some oppressed group. And so this category of control, it, it ends up exploiting and practicing injustice. This is the biblical word injustice, where people in control to protect their own vulnerability impose it on another. The area of control is also more personally, not just in terms of systems and governments. This is also the realm of addiction. This is the biblical category of idolatry, where if you're in a social setting, you feel really uncomfortable with yourself and you feel very vulnerable, what do you do? You reach for a drink and everyone drinking starts feeling better about their vulnerabilities and they can finally connect. And at some point, the thing you turn to to rescue you from your vulnerability, the drink, or the substance, or the overwork, it will always come back, and it will move you from control into suffering. Idols are, make very bad lords. And so there's this, there's this cycle of control and suffering. Are you tracking it all? I hope so. There's this loop of injustice and idolatry where something is warped, this is Kraft's words, in the grain of the universe, something that prevents us from turning authority into flourishing. We are bent in the direction of exploitation, privilege, and safety. So, speaking of safety, this is our final quadrant. Low vulnerability, low authority. You think, well, that doesn't sound very appealing. Oh, yes, it does. Have you ever seen a cruise ship? It's like, you have no authority there. You're not the captain. You can't do anything. And it's just, there's no risk. Now, of course, there is some risk, but it's all mass. It's all a mirage. It's, there's just ice cream and drinks and pools and sunsets. It's everything good all the time. But can you imagine living there forever? Safety is, it's early retirement, right? It's like, I, I gave up all the responsibility. I gave up all of the authority. Yes. But now I'm also hedging and protecting. I'm going to live my life out my years in safety. Safety is simulation. It's games. It's video games. It's virtual reality. Where it gives you this appearance that things are meaningful. Where it gives you the appearance that you're like a Madden quarterback. Because you pushed a few buttons on a remote. And, and the crowd goes wild every time you win. And it's a simulation. It's not real. And so many people, he calls this one withdrawing. We just, we retreat into these simulations. It's not just video games, it's just sports in general. We, everyone knows that the biggest games, it's where you have like authority of the best team and vulnerability facing the other best team. That's the one that gets the prime time spot on ESPN or ABC. But just remember that you're the one watching on TV. You're actually not risking anything. You're a spectator. <laughs> but it's the simulation of authority. It's the simulation of vulnerability. That's what fandom is all about. The simulation of friction-free activism, where you go on social media and you just say, I support this cause. See my solidarity. We'll talk more about virtue signaling next week when we look at the hypocrites in Matthew 23. It's just so easy. It looks like you're doing something, but you're actually not. You see, safety is it's this cozy zone for most people today. And so we run away from vulnerability. But in fact, the normal progression of a human life is supposed to go from safety into flourishing. Every human enters into the world in this safety where you have low authority. The only thing you can do is scream. <laughs> and that's enough to get your diaper changed and to get the milk that you need. You have little authority and you have, in, in the best homes, very low vulnerability. You're cared for. You're held. There's, there's no one looking to you. You're protected. You're swaddled. You're laid down in the dark in a baby bed that has these bars of protection even from you rolling over. But that's not where we want our kids to stay. We want them 
in equal and meaningful ways to grow in both their authority and responsibility, that vulnerability. And so the ideal human life doesn't stay in safety. It doesn't even loop back around into safety. It doesn't go into control where you're guarded from. The ideal human life, if Jesus is at all a model for us, is of that top right of, of what we're calling flourishing. Will you grab a bulletin? I just want to give you a couple of minutes to prayerfully answer a couple of questions about this quadrant. Now, I'm assuming that you understand some of what I was talking about. That may be a tough assumption today. But can you answer these three questions? Number one, where are you now in the quadrant? I, I mean, in terms of physically and emotionally, or however you want to, what, what is like your primary experience? Where do you feel like you're at? Are you in that overlap of flourishing, like, like Jesus? Or are you more experiencing suffering, safety, or control? And then the second question, the deeper question, is what's holding you there? Normally, something holds on to us to leave us there in terms of suffering. It's, it's that you need authority and you don't have, you've, you're weighted down by something you can't control. But on the other hand, if you have control, the thing holding you there is often the thing you turn to to escape from vulnerability. Can you name what that thing is? What's holding you there? And then number three, what do you need to release and to embrace to move into flourishing? You're going to have to let go of something, and you're going to have to reach for something if you're actually going to embrace authority and vulnerability. Can I just give you a few minutes to answer these questions? Write out an answer if you want. You can grab your phone, take some notes. I'll hum some Jeopardy music. All right, if you need more time, feel free to ignore me for the next few minutes. In the sixth century, there was this legendary king, King Arthur, and his knights of the round table, and they went on a quest. Do you remember the quest? For the Holy Grail. There was a legend that Joseph of Arimathea had taken the cup from the Last Supper that they had passed around, that he had collected some blood in it from the cross, that then he had traveled to Britain, and somehow in the span of history it had become lost. And so these brave knights were going to go find the Holy Grail. Do you remember Indiana Jones? We just introduced our kids to one of them. I think it was too early. We have not yet seen the uh, Last Crusade. But do you remember the last scene where there's the wooden cup and all these fancy cups? 
Today, we get to find the Holy Grail. We're going to look at the cup of Jesus and what it shares about greatness. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 20 to do it. It's page 846 in the Coffeehouse Bible. Let's pick it up in verse 17, but I actually want to set the groundwork by going back a few chapters to just like get the conversation that's happening with the disciples. In Matthew 18, they start asking this question, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Now, it's easy to look down on disciples who are asking such questions, but most people, whenever we meet one another, we're, we're in a constant battle of comparison to figure out who's the greatest? <laughs> who, where do I stand with you? Who's the greatest? And do you remember what Jesus says? He takes a child and he shows him the little ones. Story happens in chapter 19, verse 30. He wraps up the story. It's a rich young man. Rich young man, he's got all this wealth, he's got all this power, and Jesus says, what you need to do is sell all you have, give it away to the poor, and come follow me. And he walks away sorrowful, because he's really rich. And then the disciples, they see this, and they think, well, what's going to happen to us? We, we walked away from everything. Are we going to get anything for this? He tells them, rest assured, you're going to get a reward you're going to get 12 thrones. But he says, but the last will be first, and the first will be last. So rich people here, he says, don't worry about them. People who gave up everything, he says, there's a reward is coming. Very next scene, it's the laborers in the vineyard. Some got a full day's wages. The people who showed up late in the day, they only got a few hours in. And yet they made the same amount. This isn't fair. How can you do this? And Jesus reminds them, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. He's just turning things upside down constantly in the buildup to what we're about to read. And then he predicts his death in this section. And he predicts it the third time. This is the final time as they're approaching Jerusalem. In the context of everyone wondering, who's great? Who is first? Jesus gives a very different picture. He says, now, as they were going on to Jerusalem on the way, he took the 12 aside and he said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem. Now, they're very close. They'll be there soon. And he said, the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. The son of man is this royal title from Daniel chapter 7 of the one who's going to reign over heaven and earth, the one who's going to sit at God's right hand. This is a, a, the one who's given authority and dominion and sovereignty and all the people, all the nations of the earth serve him. And it says, that son of man is going to be delivered over to the chief priests. And they will condemn him to death. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles. And this is what will happen to him. He will be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And then on the third day, he will be raised to life. Mocked, flogged, and crucified. This doesn't sound like authority. This sounds like something else. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, Mama Zebedee came. Then, just as Jesus is describing his mocking, flogging, and crucifixion, Mama Zebedee walks up with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. Now she comes, this is the word proskuneo that we saw last week, the word for worship. She comes, she bows herself before him, she recognizes his authority, but she doesn't see his vulnerability. Even though he's been talking about it, they're just closing their ears to every message that he will suffer. They come to him for his authority, not thinking they need his vulnerability. Kneeling down, she asked a favor. What is it that you want? Now, going to Jesus to ask for what you want is something Jesus has already told us to do. He said, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be answered. You should ask Jesus for what you want. But sometimes you need to ask in the name of Jesus, as he says in John chapter 13, 14, and 15. Because some, some messages will not be received because they are so out of tune with who he actually is. This is what she asked for. Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. These are places of honor. The right hand is the place of highest honor. If there's somebody on your right and your left, they are supposed to be equal in honor. She says, I've, they're right behind her. Uh, Mama, can you go ask <laughs> some authority they have? And so he approaches, ask for the right and the left, and he says, you don't know what you're asking. 
Now, the, the reader who has these phrases right and left, by the time you come to Matthew 27, you see Jesus crowned king, king of the Jews, and on his right and on his left, Matthew makes sure to use the same phrases. You don't know what you're asking for. You don't really want that. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Now, people have been searching for the meaning of the Holy Grail for many years, but the meaning is just packed into the text of the Old Testament. If you want to know what the cup means, you need to go to Isaiah. It's there in Jeremiah. It's there in Zechariah. It's there in Ezekiel. The prophets love to talk about the cup. It's the cup of like bitter wine and gall. It's the cup of God's wrath. Now, God's wrath isn't something that most people want to hear about today. But I think it's extremely important to understand that Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath. The cup. He says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? This is Isaiah 51. Rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You've drained it to its dregs in the goblet that makes men stagger. So he says, Isaiah, one day God's judgment is going to come on injustice, on idolatry, on oppression and exploitation. And when it does, the ones who drink it will stagger. This is the same kind of message from Zechariah. I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. You want the cup? It's the cup of God's judgment. It's the cup of justice. We want justice. Lord, give us justice. He says, do you really want to drink this cup? Look what they say. We can. Are you sure? The left and the right at the cross of Jesus, are you sure that's yours? Do you remember Matthew 26? He has all his disciples and he goes away and he says, watch and pray. And then verse 40, he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He goes off and he prays. He comes back. He again found them sleeping. Again, Matthew 26, 56, as he's taken captive and all of the things he said was going to happen start happening it says all the disciples deserted him and fled you can drink the cup you can't even stay awake you're going to go to the cross with me you're going to swallow all of God's wrath for humanity you, you want to do that we can't but in a way, Jesus says they're actually right. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to my father for whom they have been prepared by my father. He says, you'll indeed drink my cup. But the way that they drink my cup is very different than the way that he drinks the cup. They go to a table and he pours wine. And he says, this is the blood of my covenant that's poured out for you. I want you to drink it. You see, because he drank the cup of suffering, we get to drink the cup of blessing. This is why you hear the phrase bread and the cup so much here. Because we don't want to lose sight that when we drink, we drink because he drank the cup of God's wrath. He brought justice. He swallowed what we couldn't. He did what only he could do to save us when we couldn't even stay awake. You'll drink the cup. And of course, we are still people who drink the cup. This is not the price of Christian greatness. This is the price of just following Christ at all. The presence of Christ in the cup. Now, James, who's one of these sons of Zebedee, he's actually one of the first martyrs in Acts chapter 12. His head is removed from its body. And he does endure death for the cause of Christ. But even then, he doesn't drink the cup in the same way that Jesus does. 
You see, Jesus experienced a vulnerability that made him stagger even in contemplation of it in the garden. We'll come to there in a minute. He says, it's not for me to grant. That's for my, my father. What do we do with this? Luther, he says, the Apostles' Creed helps us with this. He says, we know that Jesus is the one true son of the, of the Lord. And we know that he was suffered under Pontius Pilate and he was crucified and buried. And we know that he was ascended and is returning. If you get the full V, all of this makes sense. In his divinity, he knows. In his humanity, he suffers. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. It's not because they're frustrated. How could you? No, they wanted the spots for themselves. And so Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over. Now, the, the rulers here, it's actually, literally, it's the great ones. In contrast to the little ones. Who's the greatest? He says, this little ones. He says, but the great ones, they lord it over. They, they bend over and they look down and their authority goes from the top down. This is the way of the world. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. This is the word for deacon, diakonos. You have to become a servant, a table waiter. Somebody who is just delivering food and washing feet. And whoever, he says, wants to become first must become your slave. And in terms of a social pecking order, there's no one lower than the slave. And Jesus says, if you want to be great, aspire to this. Make it your ambition to be a servant and a slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Just as the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Remember Daniel 7, 13 and 14. It says, the authority and sovereignty and dominion was given to him, and all the peoples and nations of the earth served him. But instead of all the nations serving him, he says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, this text is really important. In the Gospels, very few times do they actually explain why Jesus had to die. There's a, a little allusion in Matthew 1 that he would be killed for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. And then there's the table scene where he says, this is the blood of my covenant poured out for you. But past that, it's, it's just happening. It's not explained why except one time. This is the time in Matthew and Mark and Luke where the death of Jesus is explained. And so it's really important that we just pay attention to how he says it. He says, I came to give his life as a ransom. Ransom is this word for it's the payment where you set somebody free, like a slave who's held in bondage or a prisoner who wants to experience freedom and liberty. Ransom is what you give in exchange for something. And the prophets talk about the ransom, but no more clearly do they talk about it than in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. Uh, Hayden read it for us. Thank you, Hayden. And so we have the cup of Isaiah 51 that will make men stagger. And then we have the ransom of Isaiah 53. And what Jesus is saying is that I am the one who drinks the cup of suffering as the servant who rescues the people. Listen to this, Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong. He has poured out his life unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. When we see this idea of ransom, what it's saying is that Jesus is saying that I am the one who suffers for the salvation of the world. One scholar, he says, it would be hard to compose a better brief summary of the thrust of Isaiah 53 than 
give his life as a ransom for many. Now, some people may get caught up on this phrase, many. Many, does that mean not all? There's a lot of Calvinists who preach limited atonement. Calvinists, sometimes you can be more Calvinist than John Calvin. When John Calvin read this, he understood that it meant for all. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 that he was a ransom for all. So, R.T. France, a theology of limited atonement is far from the intention of this passage and would be anachronistic in this context. He died for all of us. So, let's go on. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. I want to explore how he does this, how he takes people who were aspiring for authority, and he says, you can't drink the cup, but one day you will drink my cup. How does he change people from the sleepy heads who, who can't stand with them into people who get their heads cut off for him? How, how does one become someone who just embodies the life of Jesus? That exchange happens through the cup. It happens through his, his death. The death of Jesus is not an accident. It's the goal all along. He came to save his people from their sins, and this is how. And so as he's in the garden, he says, My father, if it's possible, may this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he's staggered. Under the thought of the cup, he wept. Blood poured from his face at just the prospect of drinking the cup. Now, this is, this is wild because there are so many Christian martyrs who face death better than Jesus. We, we have so many martyrs who were burned at the stake, and what are they doing at the end? They're not weeping tears of blood. They're singing hymns. There's something that happens here when he drinks the cup that is unlike what happens to James when his head is cut off or unlike what has happened to John when he's exiled into Patmos or unlike what happens when the martyrs are burned at the stake. What happens here is far weightier. This cup makes him stagger at just the thought of it. It sends him reeling, to use the language of Zechariah. And the cup is the cup of justice, the cup of every conscience that has ever existed. It's the cup of, of sin. It's the cup of death. It's, it's the cup of rescue. It's the cup that, that ends exploitation and injustice. It's the cup that breaks the power of idolatry and control. And Jesus drank the cup for you. And so sometimes when we think about serving, we can feel a little needy. Doesn't anybody see all that I'm doing? I need a little help around here. It feels like I'm the only one. I'm underappreciated, I'm snubbed, I'm ignored. But Jesus is like, what more could you want? I looked at you and I drank the cup. The son looked at you and chose to drink the cup. As Jesslyn said, I wrote this quote down as she was reflecting on the table. The divine nod of approval is sufficient. But when we see him drinking the cup and dying on the cross, there's no way to abandon vulnerability. That's the way of Jesus. There's no other way to try to go into a human life that avoids suffering and vulnerability is to go a different way than Jesus. Let, let the followers of Jesus, let Oikos Church take up our cross and follow him into death. But there's also no way in him to abandon authority. We are everything that he is. Because of his victory, we are victors. So he says, all authority has been given to me, therefore go. You have authority. You have the authority of the king. So what would it look like for people to be people of the Holy Grail, to be people of the cup, matching authority with vulnerability in every stage of life? So it looks like what Kraft's called the paradox of flourishing, where authority and vulnerability make up for real flourishing. This is what kingdom service is all about. I just want to give four pathways out of whatever quadrant you're in, out of whatever quadrant you're in, into flourishing. Some of these are from Kraft's, some of them are not. But do you remember your reflections here? Which quadrant are you in? Where are you now? What is holding you there? 
Is it a, a powerlessness? Do you need authority? Do you need some capacity? College, by the way, Harding students, is one of the best times to grow in your authority and wisdom to live life in the world. But most of us, we actually need to take a step to the right. You need to release something that's holding you there, but you also have to reach for something. The thing that we reach for is risk, woundability, the capacity for loss, and not just financially. This is where flourishing happens. Let's, let's just look at a few pathways. For, for people who are leaders, people who are, you've got people who report to you. You've got people who look up to you. You've got little people that you tuck in and put to bed at night. Part of what it looks like to practice a genuine flourishing is to carry a hidden vulnerability. This is the task of leadership. Leadership is where you carry the vulnerabilities for the people. A lot of times I commiserate with ministers about kind of the burdens that they're feeling and how nobody gets it. And I'm like, that's what leadership is. Leadership is where you carry in hidden ways what the community doesn't need to know. So every morning, the President of the United States gets a security briefing with every awful thing that is happening anywhere in our country. Just bullet points, one page, here you go. One page, here you go. Only one has ever been published. It was the one from August of 2001. A bullet point that said, Osama bin Laden is determined to attack America. That's it. That's the briefing. And if you shared everything with all the people, the people have no capacity to actually do anything about it. They're not leading the military. You have to carry it. So parents, we, we carry the vulnerabilities of our family. They're not meant to be shared with our children. We, we shoulder those. We shoulder them. But the, the risk of hidden vulnerability is that you'll try to do it all alone. And then you think, well, what about burnout? How, how am I going to carry all the vulnerabilities that I'm seeing and feeling? So, <laughs> can you get naked with others? Now, as crass as that sounds, I think you know what I mean. That if you're going to carry hidden vulnerabilities, you can't carry them alone. You're going to have to carry vulnerabilities with other people. You have to have a community of support who, who knows you, knows your vulnerabilities. Not, I'm not talking about safety and physical vulnerabilities and financial vulnerabilities, although those are there. I'm talking about the soul depth ones where you confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed where you expose and are truly vulnerable, not in a way of, of emotional transparency for the sake of action, but just of being known. You have to have someone if you're going to carry the mantle of leadership at any level. You cannot carry it alone. Now, there's one who did, who was totally misunderstood as he would talk about constantly his vulnerabilities that were coming. But you're not him. You need a people. You need a partner. Okay, so getting naked. Uh, should have found a different phrase, I guess. Another way out is to choose to serve for flourishing. If you think of the move out of control or out of safety, it's service. It's, it's where you take a step into vulnerability and risk. But do you remember that dynamic of control and suffering? How in order to have authority with no vulnerability, someone else has to carry the vulnerability? It's violence, it's exploitation, it's oppression, it's injustice. But there's another thing that, does the, that has the same effect. It's charity. Charity is where you will give, give away, but without raising up. And it has the same effect as violence. It leaves people continue to be powerless. And so as a church, we have to find ways not just of giving handouts, but of, not, of stepping into vulnerability with our community. 
and then stepping them, our community, our city, to raise them up in authority. Instead of handouts that go down, to step out and to lift up. It's service, not just for charity, but for flourishing. To raise up in authority as we step into vulnerability. Our direction team, every week, we, we are praying about what this will look like for our church. I'm so excited about next year. We have, we have lots of prayers still, very few plans. But this is, this is our, our, our really our vision for next year. It's how do we step into raising our authority as we step into vulnerability in this city. The fourth one, the fourth move, is the move of Jesus. This is Crafter's phrase. It's the Apostles' Creed phrase, to descend to the dead. And he says, sometimes the bottom just drops out, and you give up all authority, and it's surrender. Now, every, every story, in order to have meaning, remember, it's meaning, the capacity for meaningful action. It's the exposure to meaningful risk. The story has to have some place where you step out and you give it up. This is the only story that makes sense because this is the true story of the gospel. This is the story that, this is the world that we live in. That's, that's the meaningful story. And it so happens that that is the story that gets told over and over and over. Do you remember in the Avengers movies? It's like, I wasn't really into them. I sort of knew what was happening. But when it came to that finale, I was like, well, every story has to have an act of self-sacrifice. Spoiler alert. It was Iron Man. <laughs> right? So he gives himself up. He, he lets it all go. Why? For flourishing. This is the story of Harry Potter, right? I didn't read the books, but as I was watching the movie, I was like, I know where this is going. Because every true story, if it's going to be meaningful, and Harry Potter is to many people, you have to have some level of stepping out and descending to the dead. This is Harry. I just read through The Lord of the Rings in the last month. It was awesome. It had been too, too long since I had read those three books. And what I noticed is that every Jesus figure in the story, there's three, every Jesus figure descends to the dead at some point. First, Gandalf, the wizard, he descends into the abyss and he's, he's killed before he rises as Gandalf the White. He goes down into the realm of the dead and dies. Frodo, he goes to Mount Doom where he confronts Death face to face. Aragorn, he has to go through the, the path of the dead. Everyone must risk it all at some point in order to step into all that they've been called to do. You may not be Gandalf or Frodo or Aragorn or Harry Potter or Iron Man, but if your story is going to be meaningful and flourishing, you're going to have to risk something. At every stage, you have to take a step where you... You carry the risk in confidence that on the other side is resurrection. Man, I have been thinking of the Shapleys a lot in the last week. And it would not surprise me if they were just in that quadrant suffering. Except that my assumption is that as the family's been together, that there has been so much flourishing. This has been my experience in the face of death. That as you gather around the dying, who are dying in the Lord, that's when we really come alive. We, we touch the vulnerability in a way that we haven't ever gotten so close to. We see the man or the woman that we love so much just slipping away. We have never seen vulnerability in the face like that. And yet our hearts are filled in hope and love. As we lock arms and as we sing, and as we tell stories, and perhaps most of all as we laugh in the face of death. Flourishing requires vulnerability. And to live a life without vulnerability is to run away from meaningfulness. You don't want that life. 
But to live the life of meaningfulness, you have to step into service. Stepping into service looks like stepping out and descending to the dead. How? Because he drank the cup. Because he descended to the dead. He goes to the dead and he proclaims his victory. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. To the glory of God the Father. That's the, the first hymn that the Christians sing. Is that he's got authority on heaven and on earth and under the earth. read it together. I'll close in prayer with this as, as Jess did at the table. Christ, we see you being in very nature God, who do not consider equality with God something to be used to your own advantage. Rather, you made yourself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man you humbled yourself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted you to the highest place and gave you the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord Jesus, would you guide our steps into greater authority, deeper vulnerability for the sake of our flourishing in this city. Amen. God bless.